Uh, I'm I'm Scott Wilson. And I'm Steve Strobridge. <laughs> <laughs> and we're here for episode 28, wishing everyone a Merry Sithmas, since it is literally the day after Christmas. Did you have a good Christmas, Scott? Yes, I did. Yes, yeah. I did. Can't complain. And we're live in the studio, in a new studio setup. We got our professional microphones going. We got our little mixer here. We got a little green screen going on here. Uh, we're kicking it up a notch, hopefully. Um, now all we need is good content, right? So um, so the main thing we're going to talk about today is what movie did we both recently see, Scott? Avatar The Way of Water. Avatar The Way of Water. And since it's the day after Christmas, I thought we might just spend a minute going over some of our favorite Christmas memories. And so we'll call this segment Merry Sithmas. You want to kick it off, Scott? Any, any fond things, Christmas memories you have growing up? Uh, the first one that comes to mind is the Christmas of 86. I remember my father was in Georgia. He was preparing for us to move down there. He went down there beforehand to buy a house and secure a good job, all of the preliminaries. And we were still, me and my mom were still in the Bronx, but he sent enough money to get me presents. So I remember I got Jetfire, the Transformer Jetfire, known, okay. as, known as Skyfire on the cartoon. I got about three G.I. Joe action figures. I remember I got one of the Dreadnoughts. I got one named Barbecue, and I got Bazooka, I believe. So this was the new generation of G.I. Joe, not the old Hasbro 12-inch. No, this was the the one that began in 82, I believe. They had the syndicated cartoon and the Marvel comic, the smaller version that was meant to compete with Star Wars. Gotcha. Right. Right, but that was a good Christmas. 86. Um, What else did I get? I think there were some other things. Um, I remember I got robotics. There was, and this was the Christmas of 85, not 86. I'm sorry. The Christmas of 85. Sorry, folks. I misdated that one. Put the wrong timestamp on it. It was the Christmas of 85. I got robotics because that had also a cartoon. There was a sort of variety show that uh, Marvel and Sunbow Productions had that came on Sundays up in New York and it had Bigfoot and the Muscle Machines. It had robotics and I think Gem and the Holograms, if I'm not mistaken. But Gem, like G-E-M, Gem? J-E-M. Oh, Gem, yeah, J-E-M. And that was they were kind of like rock stars or something, but they also had superpowers. Yeah, holog- yeah, they were holograms. Okay, yeah, I'm, I'm ashamed to admit somehow I remember seeing that on the, oh, uh, on the cartoon remember. line. I never watched it. <laughs> well, I used to watch it because okay. anything that had the Marvel um, name on it. Was that a Marvel production? Well, Marvel, they had like a some kind of partnership or something with a company named Sunbow. That was the ones that did the Transformers cartoon and GI. If you looked at the end credits, you would always see like Marvel and Sunbow. And Sunbow also did like the... Spider-Man and his amazing friends and okay. Incredible Hope and stuff okay. like that. Gotcha. So. Okay. Yeah, I, I think one of my earliest Christmas memories, I was probably one or two. I remember getting the yellow Tonka truck, and I think it was the big crane. I think I had the big crane, and then I had the dump truck, so you could like dig up dirt and throw it in the dump truck. So that's like, that would have been early 70s. Then I remember getting that. And then, of course, we got into, um, I remember getting the Mego. Uh, 
uh, superhero figures. You ever have any of those little eight-inch Mego figures? They were fully clothed superhero I, I costumes. Had, I had some when I was very, very yeah. small. I think I had Spider-Man when I was very small. Yeah, so Spider-Man, you could take off the costume. The head was, you couldn't take the Still mask Spider-Man. off the head. Yeah, um, but I had a Batman where you could actually take the mask off Batman. I had Batman and Robin. I had a Spider-Man. I had a Hulk. I had Iron Man. I had a bunch of those throughout the years. So getting those was cool. The original G.I. Joe's, like the 12-inch G.I. Joe's, they, they came in like a, a box, like a footlocker type box. And the first G.I. Joe had the camo, had the shoulder holster, and the pistol. And that was, and that was your basic G.I. Joe. And then you could get all the outfits and the accessories. And in the coming years, I remember getting the, um, the helicopter, the submarine, the diving suit, and the... The, the like the raft, the little rubber raft, and with the shark, you know, all those adventure sets you could get. Those were always cool. The Mego stuff was cool. And I think it was maybe Christmas of 83, one of the most coolest, nerdiest Christmases when we got our ColecoVision. And that was like the best thing ever. Like we missed out on the Atari boat. All my friends had Atari, and Atari was cool. We missed Atari, but um, we got ColecoVision. And ColecoVision could also play Atari games. We had the adapter where you could plug that in and play Atari games. So having the ColecoVision, when it came with that Donkey Kong game, you were the envy of the neighborhood if you had that. So that was a super cool Christmas memory. And, of course, now we just celebrated Christmas with my kids. And uh, we've had some really interesting Christmases here through the years. I remember one year we did a retro Christmas where I got them the old Atari flashback that you just plug into your TV and it had the paddles. We could play Pong and we could play, I had like a 80 games built in. It looked like a little mini Atari. I got, that was like 2014 or something like that. I got them that. And then I think the year after that, we, I got them all Xboxes, or like Xbox 360s because that was still the thing because we were all playing Minecraft at the time. So one year, all the kids got an Xbox for Christmas. Um, but yeah, we've had some really interesting Christmases with the kids too. So it's, it's, it's nice to have like your memories of your, childhood Christmas memories and it's nice too when you become a parent to have some new memories with your kids and the stuff that they want to have so yeah so hopefully everybody watching now or listening later hopefully you guys all had a Merry Christmas and you have a Happy New Year and uh, Merry Hanukkah and uh, Merry Happy Kwanzaa is it Merry Kwanzaa Happy Kwanzaa I'm not sure how you use the right usually Happy Kwanzaa Happy Kwanzaa and Happy Festivus for the rest of us so whatever you celebrate or don't celebrate I hope you're just having a great end of your year and all that good stuff so enough on the Christmas memories, mm, excuse me, hiccup. Let's jump into what we want to talk about this week because we've both seen it. But the latest movie, Avatar with The Way of Water. The Way of Water. The Way of Water. Uh, so you want to kick off your initial reactions on the movie? Okay, Avatar, The Way of Water. I'll start off by a mini review of the first one just to give people some perspective on where I'm coming from so they can apply that to... The review of the new movie however they wish or they don't have to apply it uh, I saw the original four times in this in the theater it's one of my fonder memories one of the better experiences I've ever had in a movie theater in terms of like pure spectacle and something that kind of took me back to those days of waiting in lines around the block for Return of the Jedi or going to see Jurassic Park for the first time uh, it really kind of took me back to those days I think it was a grand experience on the big screen to see it on an IMAX screen with 3D. For me, it lost a lot in home viewings. It didn't really hold up. I don't really hold that against the film itself. I just think it's something that James Cameron designed to be the kind of attraction that you pay to go see on a big screen with a lot of people. 
uh, it doesn't really function the same when you're at home and you're watching your own home theater, no matter how big the screen or how good the sound system. Uh, and I bought, there was like a multi-disc special edition that came out of it. And I remember okay. I bought this thing and I watched it maybe twice. I never really, you know, because it just didn't have the same effect. Uh, the only real complaint I had about the movie itself was that Cameron's not as good of a writer as he was in the beginning, in my opinion. Okay. He's cannibalizing himself a bit. You see the exosuits from Alien, the power right. loaders come back. Right. Uh, a lot of ideas you see kind of come back from his older work. I think these days he's a guy that's more about technology and about oceanography or marine biology or whatever it is. Right. He's more about that kind of stuff than he really is. I don't know if he really has a passion for telling stories or making movies anymore. So well, I would say this was a a, a fairly good story. Um, you know, It's a better... It, it's no, Sorry to cut you. That's right. Go ahead. It's a better... I think this, okay, this new one, yeah, the segue into my opinion on it. I was just doing that just to set up because people might wonder, well, if he thinks this about the new one, what do you think about the original? Um, the new one, I mean, again, I thought it was a great experience seeing it. You know, I went to went down to West Palm just so I could see it on an IMAX screen. Uh, note to anybody listening, they used to have a list online of real and fake IMAX screens. So before you pay to go to an IMAX screen, you may want to look for that li Google and see if you can find a list. Because not all IMAX screens are real ones. And I don't know if that's still a thing, but I remember about a decade ago, that was a big thing. Well, is it the screen that makes it IMAX or is it the projector? It's not. Isn't it, it's probably the projector. Um, it's because I know it's something has to be filmed in IMAX in order right, for it. Right, right. It's a certain yeah. uh, there's a certain resolution or certain frames per second. Um, it's a certain aspect ratio. It's not quite yes. as wide. It's more square. So it's, a lot of these movies that are IMAX experiences, the whole movie. Like I remember when Batman, the Batman with the Joker Dark, came Dark out. Knight. Yeah, it had IMAX sequences, sequences, so you could see it kind of go square. Christopher Nolan. Yeah, known and for then that. and then and then it went back. To even on the wide. even on the Blu-rays, you could see that happen. Yeah. So um, I remember seeing that Batman in an IMAX in West Palm down there, down, yeah, downtown yeah. City Place. Um, yeah, no, so I didn't see it in IMAX. I saw it at the Welfare AMC airports in Lucy just because we wanted to get in and see it. Right. Um, yeah, I'm not I'm not a fan of that theater because they haven't done anything to it in 14 years as far as updating the projector bulbs or fixing blown speakers. <laughs> it's, well, that's, it's, that's, actually, that's actually something that, that Lucas used to crusade against when Phantom yeah. Menace came out. He said a lot of theaters have substandard presentation. Yeah, yeah. And he was trying to fix that. And I remember I think a lot of exhibitors resented him for that, but in the long term... There should ended, be standards. And he, but he ended up being right in terms of pushing digital projection and things of that. But back to Avatar 2, uh, that's the point. No, I, I enjoyed it. Um, I think story-wise, it's a little stronger than the first film. Right. Um, it's less reminiscent of Dancing with Wolves, like the first one was. It, I think, it uh, again, in terms of spectacle, I mean, it's just... You know, you. I was just fascinated watching 3D that actually feels like 3D. Oh, you saw actually, it in 3D, the new one. Yes, that has in the intended effect. Okay. Um, it, you, you really see, you, you you can see the multiple layers on screen. You can see the background separating from the foreground, and what have you. You can see multiple layers moving in front of each the other. The depth of it, yeah. Depth of field and all that other stuff. I mean, it really. If nothing else, James Cameron has really shown us what 3D is supposed to look like. Uh, and that's an achievement in and of itself. Um, it again, I felt like the story was a little derivative, but again, I just think that's where Cameron is at this point because this one had elements of spoiler alert, like Free Willy, 
with the whales and yeah. things like that. Um, and I don't know if he was going for that particular film, but it's something we've seen in other movies. Okay. Uh, he did expand on the Navi lore and the mythology a bit more. Um, there's still dances with wolves elements in it. Yeah. Um, yeah. But in terms of like I said, in terms of just the spectacle, and that's really what I grade Avatar movies on. And I think the second film kind of confirms that, reaffirms that for me. I grade Avatar films basically on just the spectacle. To me, they are very much, as Scorsese described Marvel movies, Martin Scorsese described them as theme park movies. I think, I don't know if that really applies to the Marvel movies. It more applies to something like this or even Top Gun Maverick. The, this is a real theme park. In, in fact, I think this is the kind of thing they should always, in the Disney parks, they should probably have a movie theater where they're always showing this in the first Avatar on a big IMAX screen, and you can pay to see it whenever you want. Right, it's, it's on a continual loop, right? Yeah. yeah. Like, uh, I, I think as, as that, I think it functions very, 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 very well. I did like uh, the villain of the piece, Stephen Lang's character, which I can't remember the name of the character. Uh, he makes a return here. And something that I kind of should have... When, when I saw the movie and I saw how he returned, I should have seen this coming. He comes back as an avatar himself, which is kind of... There's a nice irony to that, given yeah. How, yeah. He, how he feels about the Na'vi. Uh, and um, it's it, you know it's kind of a predictable turn, like I said. Uh, I enjoyed him as a villain. I enjoyed having him back. I know a lot of people are going to see this and they're going to complain and say that's real, real predictable. Also, he can keep coming back now because if he's just, if his spirit or personality is just a download in a cloud. Right, right, right. He's, but, he's a clone. But I didn't, I didn't mind that. I didn't mind that too much. What I did enjoy was this is a considerably more violent movie than the first one and the violence is more emotionally charged. I think this is the closest that we've gotten in a long time to the, the old R rated James Cameron from. The Terminator, Aliens, and Terminator 2. That's the James Cameron that I got to know as a kid. Uh, this is probably the closest he's been to that. But I've talked long enough, and Steve has just been here and nodding his head. So Yeah, no, I'm listening along with you. I'm not disagreeing with anything <laughs> yeah. here. Yeah. Um, I would actually say that's the only thing I found disappointing, is that our main protagonist was the same guy, the military well, antagonist. General, antagonist, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and his motivation was just revenge, where you killed me, so now I'm going to kill you back. I felt that to be a little bit kind of cheap and, you know, unimaginative. Um, so the fact that the guy who was already dead, his clone becomes an avatar, and now he's the villain again, and his whole, whole motivation is 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 grudge. It's a grudge, and it's revenge. It's like, well, yeah, you guys are here because, you because you know, the, 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 before they were on Pandora to get whatever that precious mineral was. They were mining something. I forgot what it was called. Uranium, plutonium, you know, uh, you know, unobtainium, whatever you want to call it. They were looking for some type of precious resource in the first movie. Now they're back because they, they basically need to move the human race, so they're trying to get Pandora ready for humanity to colonize, and um, and so in order to do that, they have to get rid of the pesky indigenous people that are there who are not going to tolerate them. And so Earth has one mission. You know, we need to colonize Pandora for Earth because Earth is about ready to go dry. Um, but this guy's got his own mission, which is I'm after Jake Sully because Jake Sully killed me. So now I need to kill him. So I felt that one plot me um, mechanism was a little disappointing because it was the, I didn't think it was that imaginative. But other than that, the entire movie as a whole, I felt was just wholesome entertainment or just 
uh, it was a, it was a, you know, the uh, the roller coaster ride, right? So if you just wanted to go to a movie and go to see a, a, a blockbuster movie to be entertained, one hundred percent did it entertain. So if I want to get real nitpicky, I can say, yeah, that the villain being a clone that was just there for yeah. revenge that was slightly disappointing. But once you get over that, there was pretty much everything about it. Now visually, cinematograph, graphically, if that's even a word. Um, now, ironically, the movie is called it was The Way of Water. Yes. But it wasn't until a third of the way into the movie before we actually got to the water. But once we got to the water, the water cinematography was astounding. Now, I didn't see it in 3D. I didn't see it in IMAX. Again, I saw it at the ghetto uh, Port St. Lucie uh, AMC 14. So the bulbs weren't as crisp. The picture wasn't as good, but it was still amazing. Um, how everything looked underwater. Now, this is this movie was probably 99.9% all computer-generated imagery. every Because they in order to get the water effects and to get all the creatures and the light diffusions and all the waving. So almost everything we saw was, was computer-generated. But it looked so realistic. Um, everything you saw underwater was mesmerizing. If there was no story, and this was just a three-hour screensaver where we're just watching this underwater serene thing, but all of the creatures that were there, how everything looked underwater. And just like we saw in the first movie, the Navi had their symbiotic relationship with the plants and animals of the forest. We meet a new um, tribe of Navi that, are, that were kind of raised on the reef. And so we have the woodland or the jungle-based Navi, and now we have the, 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 the beach reef Navi, um, they have a symbiotic relationship with all of the aquatic life. Um, they have what they call like my spirit sister or my soul sister is what she called one of the whale creatures that she had. And so they have this, um, do, they do like sign language. They've got a little bit of telepathic communication. And of course, they got the whole, you know, uh, USB connection they have with their ponytails where they plug that stuff in. So that carrying on that symbiotic relationship to now marine life was, I wouldn't say predictable, but it was just the next step. It was the natural thing. This is now showing that that um, Pandora is a bigger world. It's got a much more diverse biosphere and much more diverse life than we saw in the first movie. So it was to me, that was the natural progression of what we should see on this big world that we've only scratched the surface of. So I loved the visual aspects of it. Every frame was a masterpiece from that um, perspective. So that part I really enjoyed. I love seeing a different... Um, you know, with the word we would call a different culture, um, you know, whatever you want to call it, but they, they had different skin tone where the normal Navi was kind of like a pale blue. These guys were kind of like an aquamarine, a seafoam colored. So, and they had the bigger forearms and the somewhat web. So it's all just showing how we would evolve in different climates. Right, so people who've lived in the snow, Eskimos are used to colder weather because they generations have lived there. The same thing here; these guys have lived on the water, so they've adapted to that. So that was really cool too. So that aspect of it, um, yeah. The only main nitpicky thing I think of is just the the way they kind of crowbarred the enemy in, and that was just based on personal vendetta. Um, but that's probably that's probably what drives all bad guys anyway, right? Personal vendettas. Um, but the movie was a great action movie. Um, really touched on family. Um, again, getting into harmony. You were talking about the maybe the free willy thing. I think the the undertone to both of these movies has been um, kind of a statement 
uh, social commentary on what we're doing to our own planet environmentally and ecologically. So there's definitely an environmental statement there. And just like what we see happening now where they have those big ships out in China that will catch a shark and cut off its fins to make shark fin soup and then throw the rest of the shark back in the water and waste the whole thing. We saw some of that where they're wasting these incredibly intelligent, magnificent creatures because they can get like a vial's worth of this magic elixir um, and then they just wasted the whole other creature. So we're seeing some echoes of what's happening here. So that social awareness, that kind of environmental awareness was neat. Like you say, the action was next level. The technology was next level, not only from what we saw how they produced it, but even the technology that the Earth Forces had, too. They had next-level tech, like you're talking about their mech walkers. They had, like, next-gen mech walkers that were thinner. They weren't as bulky. They weren't like the old, you know, Robotech-type stuff. They were thinner, lighter, more scalable suits, much more flexible and articulate. Um, they're the watercraft, uh, the warcraft, all these machines of, of, of destruction were next level too. So that was kind of neat to see what had happened there. Now, in our timeline, it's been roughly 10 years from the first movie to the second. In this one, I think it's been probably more because Sully's kids are like some of them are teenagers. So it's probably been 15, 16, 17, 18 years. Well, um, keep in mind, we don't know how the Navi age. Uh, how they age and what and, their year is like compared have, to ours. Right? And, these, so. and these Navi creatures that are like whales, they carry some sort of... They, they carry something that halts the aging process um, for humans. Right, so who, right. Who, who so that, knows how they age. Right, so we don't know how time passes on that planet. But the, he's got teenagers. He's got, he's got a, yeah. a whole litter of kids various ages. Um the other thing that I thought was really interesting was their adopted daughter. Do you remember her name? The one who was the... No, I can't remember. Now, what's the name of the spirit of the planet? The mother goddess. Oh, boy. We're, we're, we're really not doing okay. well with the name. Yeah. So, anyways, we'll call her Gaia, whatever her name is, right? But it's I think it starts with the Ma- Mari or Ma- Maya, something like that. But there's that spirit of the planet, the mother, right? The Kind of the god of that planet. So, an interesting element, too, was that, you know, in, in the end of Avatar... Sigourney Weaver's character, who was a scientist and was also an avatar who was helping, you know, kind of bridge those relationships. She dies, but somehow her avatar body, which is still organic and biological, the avatar has like an immaculate conception and has a child. Now, there's no speaking of who the child was. So you could say maybe her and the guy from Bones, the scientist guy who was in the Bones show, maybe they got it on behind the scenes. Or we could elude at this immaculate conception, and she is almost like the Messiah or the Jesus of this planet, where the, the planet God, the mother spirit of that planet, conceived the child in her biological body. And this child, because you notice she's got, she's so much more in tune with the planet. Yeah. She's, she can breathe underwater a lot longer than her siblings can, and, and they're all land they're all woodland based, you know, jungle based ones. So, but she, her time underwater was much better. Her, all the little starfish and little jellyfish things that were all kind of coming to her and she can kind of control things underwater. So she has got um, a next level connection to the planet and the symbiotic relationships. So that it is not implicitly said, but we can infer that maybe she has got this stronger spiritual connection and she is kind of like a messiah. Um, type thing. So now we're not only getting into a lot of um, ecological and environmental social commentary, but even a little bit of religious possible potential commentary too. But it's not like it's not obvious. It's not blunt force. You're not being beat over the head with it. But we can all draw our conclusions 
on what that's supposed to mean. But solid quality entertainment, three hours. It's a three-hour movie, right? It's over three hours. So I'm not sure how good your bladders are, but take that in mind that maybe you want to dry yourself out and drain yourself dry before you get in there. And and and, and now I had to take, I think, two different potty breaks <laughs> there in the movie. So I, I tried to pick the parts I figured I would miss the least on. Um, but yeah, I would definitely see it again in the theater. I remember we talked about this in the news, how he's saying it's got to make, what, $4 billion to... To, um, well, okay, to keep that in perspective, right now, the movie, I was looking at the box office so far, I think it's at $900 million right now. So it's close while. to a billion, it's only been out like a week. Um, so That's domestic only? Yeah, No, that's not, it's okay. worldwide. Worldwide. But, um, okay. The, the thing that people have to keep in mind is, this is not the first time that Cameron has been in this position. When back when he made Terminator 2, which people may or may not remember, that was the most expensive film ever. And there was a feeling, uh, at least it seemed like the trade papers and the press was reporting that in Hollywood they were feeling they, this can't make the money back. It's an R rated action film starring Arnold, who was the biggest star in the world at that point, but he mm-hmm. never he hadn't had a, a hit of that magnitude yet that could justify that price tag. And then it ended up. It cost a hundred million dollars. I think it ended up making four hundred million worldwide. Okay. So, uh, and a movie. Conventional wisdom is a movie has to make three times its production budget in order to be pro- considered profitable. So it made four times that. Okay. Uh, the same thing, and then you know, six years later, Titanic, supposed to come out summer of '97, got delayed. It was so expensive. It took two studios to finance it. And again, the stories from the trade papers and the press were just not kind, and they thought Cameron was going to fall flat on his face, and this was going to end him. The, fir- the opening weekend numbers came in. I, mean, I think it was twenty-five million. I mean, somebody who's listening can probably correct me if I'm wrong. Made twenty-five mil. They were saying it was a disaster until the next weekend. It made that same amount, and the next week it it it, it, it didn't have that steep drop. Because even some of the biggest hits that Marvel's Titanic had... Titanic was in the, the, the theaters for what felt like a decade. Yeah. <laughs> it was in the theaters for a long yeah, but a time. Lot, but since the 90s and even the, two, the early 2000s, these movies, even some of the biggest hits, have kind of steep drops in the second weekend. Okay. Uh, but t- the Titanic and Avatar perform more like a movie from a different era. From like the 70s or, or the, the 80s, 80s yeah. where they, just, they, they kept going they, and they were in theaters for much longer. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so I think we may be at... That may be happening again. I don't think this is going to be as big of a hit as the first one, but I think it'll probably make the money back. It's, I think it has to make. A friend of mine said two billion to make the money back. The okay. first, the first one made three billion. Okay. So I think it's doable. I think it's doable because he's Cameron plans. I think was it four, three, four, five more of these. Right. So this is Avatar two technically, and from what I remember hearing, depending on how well it does, if it does super well, they'll possibly make five movies in total if it does reasonably well then they'll make one more and it'll be a trilogy and they'll end it on the third movie so we're going to get at least one more movie but depending on how much money this one makes we might get a few more than that um i felt it was a great companion to the first movie um it wasn't completely predictable it wasn't completely cliche lots of action lots of eye candy um, like you mentioned, lots of uh, guns and ammo, right? A lot of big budget explosions and warfare. Um, in this in this timeline, 
you know, basically at the beginning of the movie, they give you a little catch up. So they're basically saying that after the end of the first movie of Avatar, we basically kicked all the sky people off the planet with the exceptions of some scientists and people we thought were cool who were cool with us. But they got rid of the sky people, right? They're like, get off, get off of my lawn, get off of my planet. So they're basically telling us what happened since the end of the first movie. So they got rid of all the sky people. Now, in the time between when they left and this movie starts now, sky people realize, sky people's us, earthlings, we've decided, well, the planet Earth, we've just blown it to crap it's it's we've we've exhausted our resources pandora's a beautiful lush planet we're going to go back we're going to colonize pandora so now the sky people are back on pandora and they've been there about a year um again i don't know how many years in the timeline of this movie universe has has elapsed but one of the statements they made was we've been here a year and in the year we've we've that we've built up we've been able to build more than we did in 20 years before that because their technology to produce things they've got all these nanobots and all these machines making things so they've built out all of this compound and um, you know this whole big military base and, and research center and science center they've got so much technology so in the year that we earthlings slash sky people have been back on Pandora um, we have set up a pretty good foothold there and we're back to our earthling shenanigans of you know raping the planet and just rape, robbing it of all its resources and indigenous species and people um and then of course now the navi are have upped their game and they are now doing all kinds of raids against the sky people and kicking their asses and taking their guns and their ammo and their spaceships and their and their land vehicles. So now the Navi are pretty well armed as well. So it's no longer like the Wild West where the cowboys come in with their guns and the Indians have their bows and arrows, right? It's a little bit more of an even match. You know, well, not to cut you, there's one thing I want to talk about with the main character with our protagonist, Jake Sully. And there's one thing, a conclusion, a conclusion I came to, I don't know if this was intentional on Cameron's part, uh, Jake, Jake Sully, in my opinion, is kind of an a-hole. He uh, did come across... Well, because... You know what it is, though? I, I don't disagree with you. But I feel the reason why he is more of an a-hole this time around is, is two reasons. Number one, he's a parent. And once you become a parent, you in order to do what's best for your kids, you kind of have to be an a-hole to your kids, in a way. But yeah, he was, he was more of an a-hole than he should have been. He should have been a, more of a sympathetic father. But I believe he was probably doing what he felt was best because we're back in the same thing. We are now fighting for our lives. We're fighting for survival. Um, and my kids need to be strong. And this is one of the comments that his wife sent to him is, we're a family. We're not, these aren't just your soldiers. These are your kids. We're a family. So don't talk to them like they're your... Oh, well, I was yeah. going a bit beyond that Okay. Stuff. I mean, that stuff didn't really bother me because I, I can understand why he was treating his kids like that given the circumstances. What I mean more of is... This guy, even before he fully became just an, like he decided to live as his avatar and not as a as a human, this guy has brought a lot of destruction to the Navi people, and now he's doing it to various tribes. Like in the first film, right? <laughs> he right. kind of you know, and that's not to say that he's evil or something like that, but I mean he brought about the destruction of their tree. He caused the whole war. In the second film, he's bringing war to other tribes, and that's kind of a theme. And again, I don't know if that's something that Cameron is trying to actively comment on or if it's unintentional, but it just sort of plays out that way. Okay. I mean, that's a fair that's a fair observation. I feel like in the first movie, 
the war against the Navi was already there. He was almost like their savior because he kind of empowered them to figure out how to fight back because he understands the mental uh, strategies and you know of of the humans. I think he was an asset, and that war was inevitable. I don't feel like he brought that war, but I think he helped end that war. Now, in Avatar 2, um, yeah, he thinks he's helping those people by leaving because they're coming for him. And, of course, he moves to the beach, and now they're looking for him. So now he brings the danger somewhere else. But, unfortunately, in trying to help one group, he ends up endangering another. I don't think it was completely selfish, but it was inevitable based on who's after him. Um but yeah, that's just kind of the nature. That's that happens in a in a lot of uh, a lot of the fiction that we watch is that the hero has to deal with the fact that being a hero brings the baggage, and unfortunately, those around us become collateral damage. Well, it's um, a, well, in a in a weird way, and this is, again, spoiler alert. I mean, well, every show we do when we do these reviews is going to be spoilers. <laughs> so, uh, I kind of thought in an odd way when his oldest son. When uh, Jake Sully's oldest son was killed, I think that was in an odd way, sort of penance or yeah, unfortunately, things out, you know. Yeah, that was the big wake-up call that you can't be the uber asshole dad, um, and that it took losing his oldest son to realize how important his younger son was too, and and so that there was that kind of and yeah, and also that if you can, as long as these, as long as this war continues, this sort of uh, I don't know what you would call it, but this eternal struggle he now has with Stephen Lang's villain, as long as that keeps going, there's going to be collateral damage right. to his family. So he and to by, the planet, into the, the Navi, he, and everything. So else. he's gonna. So he, I kind of would have liked a bit of dialogue about that before the movie had ended. Sort of like some like him having to contemplate if this keeps going. This is going to be more lost than I can handle. Uh, maybe that'll be tackled right, in right. the third and fourth but, films. I mean, honestly, what are his options? He's on that planet, and he's got a guy who's hell bent against killing him. And to continue, we're not. I'm not going to say spoiler alert because it's already been said. But his enemy doesn't die in the end, so he lives to be an enemy oh my again. I, would have, um, I understood why the little, the feral child, which I kind of. That character had a couple of issues with, but I understood why he saved his father. But at the same time, if I was, I was thinking, if I was Jake, oh my God, I would have, dude, I would have. Yeah, but again, it was this whole father son thing where you're not my son, you're not my father, but we are the closest that we have to that because I'm a clone of your you're dad. Not gonna, you're not going to let your father die. Right, 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 you know right, I mean? right. So, yeah, you can't fault him for that, but you also can't be thrilled at the fact no. either. Um, but it's setting up a sequel. So, so story-wise, the villain that we need and to... I'm, and I'm thinking one of the logical extensions, maybe a subplot in one of the future ones, I don't know if Cameron... It's not really a logical extension. It would probably be very predictable to do, but I would, I would think that maybe Jake would want to lead an assault on whatever the cloud or whatever memory bank they have that's holding this guy's download in there. Right, 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 right. So kill the source, and that way once you kill him, he's he's gone for good. Um, What I predict possibly happening in Avatar 3 is that um, Stephen Lang's character has the change of heart and realizes, well, my next best thing to a son is here. He's lived here. Maybe... You know, destroying this planet for our own selfish needs isn't 
the most important thing, and maybe they become um, unlikely allies, and he helps in the well, battle too. But there might that might be in movie four or five. At some point in time, the character's arc needs to come to a part where that character has redemption. Um, well, the irony is that Stephen Lang is now, for all intents and purposes, a Navi himself, a synthetic Navi. Yeah, but a he's Navi. an avatar. Yeah. So, like, I mean, it, it's kind of strange because now that brings a kind of a self-hate yeah yeah true true like you know you you you're basically killing off your own people in a sense i i I will say one thing and i'm not saying this in a creepy pervy kind of way but the one thing that i could not get out of my head the whole time was the amount of butt cheek that was in this movie there is so much because everybody's wearing like loincloths and wearing you know indigenous wear i have never seen more butt cheek in any movie including a porno in my life and it wasn't Mm -hmm. A gratuitous or or anything else, but there was just a lot of butt. Well, it's <laughs> a lot of blue that's, butt. Too. That's one of the things that kind of that, that for me kind of I have a I, I I get a little weirded out in these movies whenever you have like um, sort of like I guess anthropomorphic animals or alien species being sexualized because it's just like you know what like you know just watching a movie with that in it. Yeah, kind of, like kind of feels weird. It's like, dude. Yeah, no matter no matter the age or the gender, everybody had completely revealing clothes. There was butt cheek everywhere. There were mostly boobs, but every everybody had a little piece of necklace that covered just the naughty bits that's, that never moved. Gravity did not apply to the necklaces or the minimal and, cloth that covered the uh, nips. But there were butt cheeks and side boob everywhere. <laughs> and one of the interesting one of the interesting things that I think about these movies is. You know, no matter how good special effects get, they never we never get to where everything in a movie looks completely seamless. The Navi to me still don't look a hundred percent real, but there's something that Cameron kind of gets it far enough to where you kind of accept it after a while. You know, even though it still doesn't look right, you, you know what you're looking at is basically a cartoon, but you kind of just you, but you accept it's, it. it's believable enough where yeah. you buy into it. Yeah, and so the term for that is what's called the uncanny valley. valley, right? So where something looks doesn't look natural, there's a uncomfortable point where it doesn't look completely fake, doesn't look completely real. It's just off, and it becomes very disturbing. And one of those movies was the Christmas Carol. Um, and the, the polar Robert Zemeckis, and the, Robert Zemeckis, right? Yeah. Robert Zemeckis Christmas Carol and the Polar Express, where things looked just off enough to just be disturbing the whole time. So this was not a case of the uncanny valley. I felt everything looked very organic and natural and photorealistic. I felt like the eyes were very expressive, the lip syncing, um, the performance, because everything was motion captured. So all the performance, the physicality of everything felt real. I'm very glad that within less than 10 minutes, we went from subtitles to the Universal Translator kicked on and everybody's speaking English at this point. Um, because if the whole movie was subtitled, that would have been really disappointing. Um, but yeah, no, I felt the, I didn't find the Navi were disturbing. They felt, they looked real enough for the, this life form that he created out of his, out of his mind. Um, obviously, they're human-esque, humanoid, right? They're two, two-legged bipedal, two eyes, you know, two butt cheeks, the whole nine yards. Um, but yeah, if we could kind of take a brief segue here, there's something that I wanted to talk about that's kind of related to this movie. Okay. Um, James Cameron, his career now has a very striking parallel to 
someone who could see be seen as James Cameron 1.0, and that's George Lucas. Okay. Where it seems like from here on out, the rest of Cameron's career is pretty much going to be Avatar films, and we don't know how long that will last, or you know, we, we got to see how this one does before we see how that plays out, because he really doesn't have any plans to do any to develop any other kinds of projects. And uh, the parallels to Lucas are kind of striking because Lucas, he originally envisioned, from what he says, he originally envisioned Skywalker Ranch as being sort of a hippie commune for filmmakers who wanted to make their movies outside of the Hollywood system. Okay. But the the success of Star Wars, the runaway success of Star Wars kind of really altered altered his plans in a way that he didn't intend where Star Wars became so huge that he became all about maintaining the business of Star Wars and then that got that got sort of compounded by the success of Indiana Jones where now Lucasfilm is sort of mainly about maintaining its two biggest IPs which yes, happens yeah, franchises yeah. Which, which happened to be the two you know like the one is the the biggest franchise in movie history and the other is one of the biggest franchises in history so we never got to cuz the lucas the, the the lucas that existed before star wars was much more of kind of an avant-garde filmmaker much more experimental much more a guy that like cameron was into technology but not really into narrative filmmaking and if you see his original science fiction movie thx1138 it's it's totally like I said in um Andor the prison sit segment paid homage to THX right, one three right. but it's not any Star Wars film fan that hasn't seen THX will it's not what they're going to be expecting considering who George Lucas is now it's really just right right trippy. It's, it's a far departure from yeah. its humble and, beginnings and it, and I've always wondered. I've always felt like Lucas has resented the success of Star Wars and Indiana Jones to a degree because I think it probably derailed because he never really did anything else. Well, uh, as far as story-wise, well, he also did Willow. He did that. Which, by the way, the new Willow on uh, Disney Plus, I'm I'm liking it. I've heard great things about that. Uh, I can nitpick a little bit, but that'll be a whole other episode. Um, So he did Willow. Um, yeah, not a lot of other stuff, but what I will say about the hippie commune thing, so ILM, Industrial Light and Magic, he had to build that because it didn't exist. So in order to do the special effects that he wanted to do to do Star Wars, he had to build Industrial Light and Magic. And so while George Lucas himself may not have done as many movies and painted as many masterpieces on canvas as he wanted to... He created the visual effects industry, and ILM has been the premier uh, VFX shop for almost every movie that's been made since Star Wars. And it's only been in the last 10 years or so that there's been other studios. Like, we talked about James Cameron. Oh, so it was Weta. Weta. Now, Weta did. Weta was the main shop. Weta, Weta, um, New Zealand, the guys who did the Lord of the Rings, uh, Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings. So, Weta, Weta. Um, they did the visual effects for this, but but ILM was the original yeah. company that was designed to do visual effects, special effects for movies, and um, and there's been a ton of movies that have gone through ILM. So and he also created at the time what was known as the Edit Droid, which was non-linear video editing, which is what everybody does now. That has become a system that's known as Avid, which has been released where anybody can buy Avid systems. So most of the video editing that takes place is done on an Avid system. That he, Again, he had to pioneer and create the tools he needed to do what he wanted to do. 
if you remember the prequels, uh, episodes one, two, and three, these those were the first films that were shot 100% digital. digital. So he also pioneered digital cinematography. And at the time, those cameras, we went back. They had gotten film cameras small and light enough where you could do handy, hand cams, shoulder cams, steady cams. The digital stuff was big, bulky stuff. Again, that was hard to do, but now everything is done digital. So I agree, he hasn't made as many movies, but he has done enough for oh, yeah. the industry that he's got nothing to be ashamed of. Oh, oh no. Yeah, yeah, his, yeah. His achievements overall, yeah. though, that can't be argued with. It's just I wonder what the filmography, and like with Cameron, like his output beginning, really, I think the first indication was that six years between... Well, it wasn't actually no, because he did True Lies in '94, so it was only three years. But the 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 chasm that was between Titanic and Avatar was I mean, two, ninety-seven like and ten years, twelve years. It was yeah, 12 and it's like there's ten years or so it's, between Avatar and Avatar Two. And his output slows down so much, and then like I remember this. I mean, this is the guy, the the Spy, Spider-Man as a movie franchise partially got off the ground because of him, because of the script treatment that he wrote. Because after Terminator Two, I, I still remember. When Stan Lee was on Good Morning America, this was following the success of T2, and they were talking to Stan Lee just about the success of... Because I think at that point, Marvel was having its 30th anniversary. The Marvel Universe was having like its 30th anniversary okay. or something. Spider-Man was having his 30th anniversary. They were talking to him, and he said, you know, we... He said, we have a big project in the works now. Uh, James Cameron, who did T2, he's doing the Spider-Man movie. And I remember he not, and I remember just being so excited about, whoa, he's doing Spider-Man. And then for a few years, there was big talks about the announcement on MTV that he was doing it. And um, As a matter of fact, there's some of those images that just were circulating recently of the this the picture of like Spider-Man climbing up a glass building, like looking down that shot. So there was a couple of those, and they had one in the yeah. red and blue suit and one in the black suit. And he's also an artist too, so he's yeah. done a lot of his oh, he, uh, the, yeah, like uh, a hand artist, pen and you know paint and pen and ink and all that kind of stuff. So he actually drew those pictures of Spider-Man script, climbing up the glass thing. So the script treatment that he wrote, which to be honest, and, and most fans who've read it can would, would agree with me, isn't the greatest. But certain elements of it made it to the finished product that Sam Raimi made, the organic web shooters. That was originally, I think, I think he's the one who came up with that. The upside down kiss. Is a modification of a full which is an homage to a scene from one of the comics. It's well, also it's also a modification of uh, a full-on sex scene that Cameron wrote for Mary Jane and Peter Parker atop the Brooklyn Bridge. Okay. Yeah. Uh, um, again. It, okay. His script treatment was pretty crazy. Yeah. Uh, okay. I mean, now my ears are turning. And I'm thinking, if I'm Spider-Man, I can. Now that you planted that seed, there's some things I would certainly like to try. Yeah. But <laughs> do we want to see that on the screen? Um, you know, tone it down. <laughs> Maybe but, Spider-Man the porno. But but, uh, but yeah, but he, he had that. He had that. He he um he had there was supposed to be a, a small drama he was going to do just to show he could do that about uh, uh, uh about someone who suffered from multiple personality personality disorder called the crowded room okay which i remember again they announced it but it never really got made and then after the first avatar he was reportedly going all over the place in japan buying the rights to all kinds of anime properties okay and the only one we've seen that he produced again he produced battle angel alita which i liked yes that was good um but robert rodriguez directed it but it just, you know, it just makes me wonder. And it, it, we all know Cameron's big passion now, like I said, is going into the water, you know, yeah. diving yeah. and stuff. Yeah. But it just makes me wonder 
you know, I, I know that everything is a loss in the game, but it just makes me wonder, you know, if he was still as driven with filmmaking, what could we have gotten? Right. Well, I know we talked about this in some of our previous episodes where we've talked about, um, we talked about sequelitis, right? Mm-hmm. And we talked about, um, you know, and, and so the fact that James Cameron has done as many blockbusters as he has, you almost, you, you wonder, is he still able to? Right. And he did. So Avatar was a huge success. Avatar, The Way of the Water, now is a huge success. So you could say, has he lost his edge? Has he gotten soft? Has he forgotten what it's like to make a big blockbuster movie? That answer is no. So I hear what you're saying. But when when push comes to shove, when he's ready to fire something out of the cannon, it is, it's a payload. Right. It's it's salvo. But yeah, could he have done a lot of other projects? But, but again, I'm not him. But I imagine now time is the enemy. And like yes. you mentioned with George Lucas, right, where he wanted to create this cool place for independent filmmakers to make movies and then the demands of running an empire get in the way. Now, George Lucas has his own production company, his own film company. Um, Cameron's not there. He's using other studios to release his movies. So there is no James Cameron films like there was, industri- you know, like Lucas films, Right. So, um, but he's made enough big movies where I think the responsibilities of those and I think the he's got to pick and choose how he spends his time and the projects he needs to do yeah but if he had you say you can't say he hasn't had enough time he's had 10 years between major projects it's not like he doesn't have the money so what what else can he do and especially now on the heels of the success how busy is he going to be cranking out two to four more episodes or you know sequels to this avatar franchise but yeah, what else could James Cameron do? Hopefully, we'll we'll all live, including James. We'll, we'll all live to see what else he can make for us. But um, yeah, I mean, there's a few minor nitpicky things I could say about the way of the water, but it was solid entertainment. Um, and ultimately, I think that's all you should really rate a movie as. Was I entertained? What, did yeah. did, did at any time during the three hours was I looking at my watch saying, "Oh man, I really could be doing something else right now"? No, there was never a time where I was not entrenched and immersed. In the spectacle that was this movie, um, no, like I said, I mean, in terms of spectacle, yeah, I would like to reiterate. I think that they should be showing this on as one of the attractions at Disney World and the, and the yeah, Pandora and, 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 should and, be. And supposedly Disney World has a ride in Animal Kingdom that's based on Pandora, so they should make that like on a continual loop of there. And um, like I said, I like I like the brutality of the action. I mean, the 3D is amazing. I like the scale of the big of the big battle scenes and set pieces. I mean, yeah, all that's great. Like I like, like I said, in terms of an experience, I really enjoyed it. Like I, right. I, I, I still have I still have issues with the story. I still have issues. I think that the middle section of the film is a bit long, but like again, like I said, I enjoyed it as a whole. Right, right. So, Did the movie need to be three hours? No, but if you're paying fifteen bucks or more. Do you want to get the most bang for your buck for that fifteen to twenty five dollar ticket price? Then yeah, he gave you. And I'm sure that when you when the Blu-ray comes out in the digital editions, there's going to be deleted scenes and extended cuts and things like that. But a three hour movie, <laughs> I just remember what was it the third Lord of the Rings movie that comes out and it was at one of the one, one of the award shows. I forgot who it was. If it was. Um, uh, anyways, one of the comedians is like, how can it win an award for best editing when it's three hours long? You know what I mean? It's just like, it's a three-hour freaking movie. That's like, uh, yeah, could it have been shorter? Could have, could we have cut out some of the 
you know, but it wouldn't have been a roller coaster at that point. It just would have been a, you know, an uphill the whole time. So, um, yeah, but yeah, solid entertainment. I can't wait to see where it goes. Now you brought a, a, a special, um, uh, oh yeah, things to show, right, Scott? You want to show, it? and hopefully the green screen won't won't mess with that. I'm hoping it doesn't, because it kind of has a greenish, yeah, color to it. But it's one of the. If you hold it in front of you, then yeah, yeah. it's. But yeah, it's the green the screen walkers, is the crab walkers. Yeah, so that was really neat too. How the vehicles, how they modified the vehicles to behave like organic creatures. Yeah, well, sea life, sea life. Case. Yeah. Yeah, so having crab-like vehicles that could transform. Yeah, it was like a little bit of transformer stuff going on in these things too. How they could change shape. Well, it's a it's a combo. Again, it's a combo. You have sort of Cameron sort of cannibalizing some of his earlier. It's a combo of one of the submersibles from the Abyss and the power loader from Aliens. Right. It's kind of smashed into two, smashed into one. Um, Cameron definitely has, and I I guess that's the anime influence in what he does. Because from what I understand, like I said. I understand he's a huge fan of anime, and you know from early on, it's kind of when you think about the power loader and aliens. That yeah. was that was before anime was in any way mainstream in America, and he was already kind of introducing ideas that yeah, the kind of like the mech yeah um, type thing. So yeah. he and he seems to you know, but yeah, I got I got to revisit Battle Angel Alita. I got to revisit. Yeah, that I movie. found that to be pretty yeah. entertaining. It, it seemed like they set it up where there could be more. You know, that was kind of like the origin story of a superhero, in a way. And she still has a little bit of that mysterious past. So where that could potentially go. I remember the anime, because it's based on a manga, but I remember the anime okay. being way more violent than the movie. Actually. Okay, okay. So, but, um, yeah, so no, just in closing, I guess maybe we can maybe we can kind of put a fork in this review. Because I think, um, yeah, no, I, I, again, I would recommend it. And again, to everybody, just... I would recommend going to an IMAX screen and seeing it in 3D if it's available to you. See, see it on the best screen and presentation you can. See it in 3D. Check to make, check to see, make sure if you go to IMAX that it's a real IMAX screen, please. Uh, but like that's the best way to see it. In fact, a few reviewers have said if you don't see it in IMAX, it doesn't make any sense. Okay. And I and I would want to see it again. Number right. one, because it's worth seeing again while it's still in the theater, and maybe see it at its full experience, like you mentioned, the IMAX 3D. You down to see it a second time? Um, yeah, I could. I mean, that's of course that's one of the things you gotta you gotta um, plan out a block of time for. But I yeah, can, I right, can, right, I can right. So my it, time's yeah. a little bit more flexible than yours is, yeah. but yeah, um, yeah. So we'll we'll put a fork in that. Um, w- would you give it a thumbs up? Yeah, no, I'll give it a th- okay. I'll give it a thumbs up. I'll give so, it a solid thumbs up. So, so two solid yeah. thumbs up on Avatar, The Way of the Water. Um, I know we've given away something. We haven't given away everything. There's a lot going on there, a lot of neat stuff. Yeah, there's a lot. There's things we didn't even... I'm, I'm thinking there's some pretty major things we didn't even touch on. So, But, yeah. If you're a fan of the first movie, you will like this movie. It's, uh, it's not just cheap sequel fodder. There's, there's a lot to chew on there. Um, good times, good stuff. Uh, is there anything else you've been doing or watching lately? Um, nothing really major. I mean, I haven't been. I gotta. I want to watch Willow because I've been hearing things. Yeah, about it yeah. I'll now. just briefly say yeah, I like it. I like it. There's a few. Again, we live in a time now where you the the audience is so diverse. Again, it's like looking at Star Wars. I'm I was I'm old enough to be a kid when the first Star Wars movie came out. I was still a kid or a young teenager or something when Willow came out. 
So um, is everything we're going to see going to be everything I want to see? Is there going to be something I would prefer wasn't there? Yes. Is there going to be something I wish was there? Yes. So I realize they're trying to appeal to a much broader audience, much more generations than me. So on that on that part, I get it. But it's a good story. Visually, again, cinematographically, it, it looks... And feels like the original Willow. They're revisiting some of the locations, so there's some familiar places. It is an epic journey that they're on. It's there's a party, so it's kind of like a party of people going on a journey. The different personalities. The kid who plays uh, Flash Thompson in the new Spider-Man, he's in it. Can't think of his name, but he's good. Okay. Um, and um, so all of that, I would say, is good. I will say one thing, and and I, I'm a fan of diversity and inclusion in general and just that's that's me as, as a person and i i usually don't like it when people refer to mainstream cinema now as being too woke about things um but i think any movie that shows you how life is you know there are gay people in the world there are all different cultures and generations and lifestyles and love affair variations uh, and i don't judge those and i think if they're done in a way that's not beating you over the head but just showing you this is how life is uh, and we're living in a time where we can do that. Uh, I'm, I'm, I love to see that. And I would never say this movie is woke. But I do feel like in in Willow, the fact that they have a same-sex couple, to me, feels forced. Not that I'm against it or I'm judgmental against it or anything else like that. And I won't say who it is or what it is. But it almost feels like, well, we got to put this in here just to be diverse. Um, I don't know. I, and I'm, I'm, I say that with the um, with the precursor of saying I'm not racist or you know homophobic or any of those things. And I support seeing diversity and inclusion. But it, when it's done in a way that feels natural and you just treat it like everyday life, it's one thing. And this is kind of like that. But to me, it felt... It felt contrived to me, and I'm a very accepting and non-judgmental person. So that's all I'll say about that. Well, I think I think we're kind of in a space where I think even the professional creatives in Hollywood and even the bean counters and executives in Hollywood, we're still trying to figure out what organic is because it's been, <laughs> right. It's, because no matter what, even when you show a same-sex relationship, it's not real anyways because they're actors and the story's well, been written by a writer. Well, not, uh, well, not, well, not just that, but it's only really, in the, I'd say in recent years, I mean, notably with the Fast and the Furious franchise, where it's been acknowledged because the general... The, the general um, wisdom in Hollywood for a long, long time was movies with black casts aimed at black audiences don't sell well overseas. Uh, movies with diverse casts don't sell well overseas or don't sell to white audiences. But we've had, in the past decade and change, we've had multiple examples of, you know, the, the Fast and the Furious movies are one of the biggest ones that show yeah. that even white kids will come out to see a diverse cast. Black Panther shows that. Yes. Get Out shows that. There's there's tons of examples. Yeah, yeah. So, so the I, tide is hopefully changing. So I so I think we're I think we're seeing. I think Hollywood is still sort of learning how to implement some of these things in a way that doesn't offend the communities that they're trying to include and and you know reach out to. Right. Right. So I, right. I, I think I think there's, there's going to be is, some rough spots. Yeah. It's you know. it's a and it's a terrible balancing act that you have to do. How do we be inclusive? How do we may not be too 
offensive to the people who are too sensitive to this reality? And then how do we present it in a natural, organic, believable way that doesn't feel like we just put in the same-sex couple to be <laughs> inclusive? That kind of like the token, right? How do we, we're putting in a token same-sex couple just like we put in a token white person or a token black person because they have to be the, the token well, fat, usually, fat, fat funny guy, the token gay funny guy. And, and, and you the know, funny this, thing is, it's usually, the funny thing is that it's usually not one of the more high-end or quote-unquote respectable prestige films that breaks the barrier is usually something like The Fast and the Furious, which nobody, you know, that's no, not a... It's under the radar. You know, that's not that's not a name. I mean, those movies make a ton of money, but it's not something that is award-worthy or prestigious or is known for making valuable statements about inclusion. But it's, that's that was one of their franchises at the forefront because you had Vin Diesel, you had Ludacris, you had Tyrese, you had I mean you had a wide range. You had a there's a reggaeton star that I, I can't remember his name. I think Daddy Yankee, but you just you had this wide array of people from different places, you know, different heritage and culture and races around the world, and in, and that increased the movie's appeal. So these movies did right, amazing right. business everywhere. It was almost like a it's a multicultural cast. It's yeah. like the United Nations, but. Um, in a way, to talk about multicultural, like Star Trek did it in a way yeah. during a time when that wasn't the norm. So the they were trying examples. to paint a picture of what the future could be like, where all these different, you know, different countries where we were at war with Russia, we were formerly at war with Japan, but we're all on the same bridge and, together. And like you um, say, it is it is insulting. Like you said, it is insulting when uh, when when you can feel the air of uh, tokenism where it's just like you don't even respect this character you're just sort of putting this character in there to fill a space you don't respect the character or the community that it, the character supposedly right, represents right, right. to make to, to, right. it's like affirmative action in the casting right so we're hiring a, we're hiring this archetype because we need one to fill out our template of, yeah, no, of diversity like the be- yeah the, be- the best way the, and, and, the, and the best way to approach it I would say to any as a writer would be the, be the character LGBTQ or you know whatever race or culture they may come from or country they may come from, the story comes first. Like that, right, that, right. We're there to see a story. Right, and know? another one too that they're doing now too on Disney Plus is uh, there's a new national treasure, and the main character is a Hispanic female who is um, not. Uh, not undocumented she is a resident but she is not a citizen yet so she's not an illegal or undocumented but she's not fully citizen and i've only watched the one and believe me it was it was almost hard it was impossible to watch i'm sorry but the new national treasure is almost unwatchable but they kept pushing on well if you do this they might they might you know kick you out and deport you so they kept playing that you might get deported card and again it was the first episode and it was said so many times it felt contrived versus just a fact of the character it was almost like we have to make people aware What's and sensitive organic? to the fact well, it didn't feel organic it yeah. felt like when you say you might get deported more than three times in the first hour of your first episode, to me that is too much. Yeah, like yeah. I'm, I'm one of these guys. I'm one of these guys. I mean, like you know, Hollywood. If you want to use me as a test case or a test audience, I'm fine with whatever, almost whatever messaging you want to put in anything, or whatever, however progressive it may be. I'm fine with all of that. 
my whole thing is tell me a story that I can get into. Give me characters right, I can like. Right, right. A, ca- a good character me, is a good character regardless of their color. Give me whatever message you want. Or anything else. It. Yeah, absolutely. We just got a message from Spaz in the live chat saying, now the message is forced upon us by all corporate things. The conversation is based. This conversation is based. I'm not sure I'm following that completely. but I'm not, I, can't really, I can't really make much out uh, of uh, that. As, as long as it's not the message. Okay, now the message is forced upon us by the by by the corporations. As uh, okay, well, I mean, Re- restructure that sentence. But I think I think what you're okay. We'll Anyways, start, yeah. So the corporations we'll, are trying to force um, well, this awareness on us. Here's what I would say. Here, here's what I would say to that. Get back in the camera, Scott. You're leaning okay. too far. To, there you go. Boom. Here's, here's what you're I'm, a beautiful man. The world needs to see. So here's what I was, here's what I would say to that spaz. Um, here's what I would say to that spaz. Here's the thing, bro. If you're going to be into uh, all fandom and geek culture, all of these things are controlled by corporations. Disney is a huge corporation. So you're already indulging something that's run by corporations. And I'm not too big on... I'm not too big on the kind of messaging that Spaz is engaging right now. I'm really not too big on that because, look, the world is a big place and... You have to, on some level, you're going to have to find peace with the fact that you are but a drop of water in a sea. Right, right. And that's, right. that's, how, and that's right. how I'm going to leave that. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I would, and I think Disney is one of the ones that's mostly under fire of being too, quote, unquote, woke with all of its stuff mm-hmm. that it's pushing. And I feel, for the most part, they've had a really good balance where they've shown things, like especially like in Miss um, Marvel showing us that kind of um, Hindi culture and all these things. It, we, we weren't being beat over the head with it. We were almost like we were a visitor and we, we got to be friends with somebody from another country and learn about it in a way that wasn't... Um, oh, Miss Marvel, I still, I still love Miss Marvel. Yeah, I, like I hate the blunt force way to get a point across. When it's subtle and it's natural, but, um, that's, you know, and, and that's just good writing. But yeah, yeah. but... Um, but um, before we, I guess because we're at the hour mark yeah. now, so, but just, I want to end this... Just to, I think this is a good note to end this show on. Um, when complaining about messages being forced upon us by corporate America, all of this stuff is corporate, guys. All of this <laughs> stuff is corporate. It's all corporate. It was, to a, to an extent, it was corporate even before the modern era. So I don't know what to tell you. I mean, I'm wearing a Black Panther T-shirt that I bought in Hot Topic. Uh, you're wearing a Black Panther T-shirt. Disney is a big corporation. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the New York Yankees. I mean, the, the list goes on. It's a rabbit hole that we can go down and down and down. So, I mean, but like I said before, uh, culture goes pop. We, we'll we'll discuss almost anything here. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. this, but this is a particular rabbit hole. I think that we've looked, we've gazed into a bit more uh, enough for this episode. Yeah, 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 yeah. But so. um, anyways, to to conclude. Avatar, The Way of Water, definitely right. worth seeing. Recommend you see it at least once. And as a matter of fact, if you could see it maybe ten times, if everybody saw it ten times, I believe James Cameron would make back the money he needs to make in order for us to have multiple sequels. Right. So, and I think in like the Titanic was one of those movies that people saw it again and again and again. It was just and the Titanic was kind of like the teen shag movie too, where you just make out because you, you brought your girl there to see that because it's a love story. So it was kind of like a date. You know, date night type thing. So I'm not sure that this is a good movie to make out to, but it's three hours long. So if you've seen it 
more than twice, you might find time to do that. But anyways, I think it's a movie people will want to yeah. see over and over again. And uh, yeah, I'd like to see it again in the IMAX 3D experience. So we're going to wrap it up on that. So that, hopefully everybody had a great Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, Festivus. We're just around the new year, so hopefully you have a happy new year too. And go see uh, Way of the Water. You will hopefully enjoy it. If you're a fan of the first movie, you will like the second movie. And I don't even know what we're going to talk about next week, but we'll find something to talk about next week, too. Scott Wilson, goodbye, everybody. Goodbye.